You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. As Todd said, my name is Michael, Michael Swindell. I'm the new family pastor on staff here at the South Campus of Bethel Bible Church. And it is my joy to be here preaching today from God's Word. Uh, if you were gone a little bit this summer, you might not even know there is a new family pastor here at the South Campus. So if that's you, hello! It's good to see you this morning. My beautiful wife, Anne, our five-year-old, Ella, <laughs> smiling, loving her life right now. And then our little nine-month-old uh, chunker, Judah. Uh, we strolled up into town July 4th, so a little bit over a month ago, just in time to see fireworks, which is what we really wanted to see. Um, we've loved our time here, so we just moved into our new place where, uh, if you know where Jack Elementary is, we're right by over there. And uh, anyway, we've, we've felt loved. We felt welcomed here, and uh, many of you are the reason for that, so thank you. But um, even if you knew that a new family pastor was here, you might not know what a family pastor does. So what does a family pastor do? Um, Put simply, I help to establish and maintain a culture of family discipleship here specifically at the South campus. So it's Bethel's biblical belief that um, the, the greatest place of spiritual nourishment and formation happens in the home. And so it's my job, I've been charged with equipping families to know what it means to follow Jesus and to help their children follow Jesus in the context of family life. And so practically what that means is I get to oversee from nursery uh, through elementary, all of our youth programs. That means I get to oversee our assimilation. So from front door to discover Bethel, becoming members, I'm overseeing that now. And then also our Milestones ministry, if you're familiar with that. Milestones ministry, just briefly, it's a series of faith conversations that help parents at critical junctures in their kids' lives. So things like baby dedication, things like September 30th coming up, we have a baptism Sunday, which I'm really excited about. And if you are a parent of a child who is wondering, is now the time to be baptized? Or if you are just somebody who's thinking, I think I believe, I think I've received the good news, I think it's time for me to be baptized, please sign up for baptism orientation. That will be September 16th. So that's just a brief overview of what I'll be doing, and obviously there are other things as well. But whether you're an established member here or you're a first-time guest this morning, I would love to meet you. Um, I'd love to get a chance to shake your hand, hear a little bit about your story. Um, Even if I've already met you before, please come by. I'd love to see you again. I'll be at the guest check-in after the service. Well, today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be coming off of last week uh, when we were in Hebrews, Clint Wright um, preaching on uh, God, uh, Jesus being our friend, God pursuing us in this theme of pursue. Today, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, and um, I want to begin by setting some context for the message that we're going to be looking at in the scripture. So um, this letter was written in all likelihood between 60 and 62 AD. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written in all likelihood in a Roman jail cell. Paul was writing from a first century Roman jail cell, so in some dark, dank corner, some smelly part of the world in the first century, Paul was pinning these words to the churches in Ephesus. Now, at minimum, that context should tell us a little bit of something about what we're reading today. It should tell us that this, these words that he's uh, teaching, this, this message that he's been preaching and teaching for decades now, 
has been so transformative in the Roman Empire up to this point that the controlling authorities decided it's time to lock this guy up. In fact, in fact, his own people's religious authorities in Jerusalem have been trying to kill him and have been on the hunt for Paul for many years now up to this point. What this effectively means is that the ideas I will be sharing from this letter from Paul um, that landed him in a jail cell are in direct conflict with many of the ideas that we still think today. Now, we're not in an ancient Roman empire. We're not in the capital city, but we do live in the greatest empire in the world today, the Republic of Texas. And it's here in the United States that there are powerful mindsets, there are cultural beliefs that directly contradict this word that I'm going to be preaching today. In fact, you won't hear these affirmed in public boardrooms. You won't hear these espoused by presidents of colleges and universities. In many ways, this same message has been outlawed in many places in our culture today. In this passage, we get to the heart of the gospel, the center of the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. We learn about who we were. We learn about who we are or could be. We learn about how God has done it in his grace, and we learn about what that means for then, how should we live in light of so great a good news? Essentially, we learn this, that because God has graciously raised us to eternal life in Christ, we must now walk in good works. So let's read the passage. I'm going to be reading, again, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. This will be from the CSB. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we get to remember who we were, who we are, how you've saved us, what that means for our lives. It's all your grace. It's all because of your great love that we are here. Holy Spirit, would you empower me to speak clearly your word? 
Would you empower these people to receive it gladly? We pray in Christ's name. And they all said, Amen. So for the believer in Christ, who were we before salvation in Christ? I mean, who were we really? We were dead. We were lifeless. We were deceased. We were dead in our sins. Look with me again at verse 1. Reads as clear as day. Verse 1, you, y'all, that's the translation, y'all were dead in sins, in trespasses, in sins. But what does it mean to be dead? Certainly Paul, he's writing to breathing, warm-bodied, able to read and write and listen in the physical world people. So what does it mean that these people are dead? Verse 2, Paul says, somehow in this death that the Ephesians, quote, lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. So obviously, Paul's not speaking of a, of a physical death. He's speaking of an inner spiritual death. He's speaking about an all-pervasive inner corruption that impacts every part of the inner and the outer life. Verse 2 keeps on clarifying what it means to live in this death. It talks about being led by the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the disobedient. That language is simply a descriptive way of saying Satan. From a biblical worldview, it is Satan who's been given a measure of spiritual authority in this world and who is, quote, at work in the, quote, disobedient. So although we were spiritually dead, we were so dramatically impacted by the spiritual death that we actively, willfully in our lives lived lives in direct opposition to God's kingdom. In other words, we were not dead in the sense of having no will. We were dead in the sense of being imprisoned from a lethal combination of internal fleshly passions on the one hand and external demonic influences on the other. This certainly describes my life before Christ. As a 15-year-old jock who could not control his temper, his appetite, his lust, his foul mouth, or his unbridled selfish ambition, about the only things I seemed to care about were earthly success, beautiful women, and a D1 scholarship. And praise God, I got one of them. But God irrelevant, unhelpful toward my goals. Church, boring, incapable of truly impacting society. Jesus, I was thankful for that guy who doesn't want eternal free lunch. But I had no idea of who he really was. Now some of us here may not agree with this description outside of the life of Christ. If you followed what I just said closely and have been influenced by ideas and mindsets in our culture, you already have opportunity to be offended by a couple of things I just said. First, most people today do not assume that they are born spiritually dead and morally corrupt. We're born spiritually alive, and at worst, we're morally neutral. It's the complex interconnection of ignorance, bad influences, low self-esteem, and poverty that cause problems in the world today, or so that's how the reasoning goes. In addition, some would balk at the idea of a real demonic spiritual being existing at all. In the minds of some people, the language of Satan or demon, it's purely symbolic of some social ill or some personal addiction. And yet the question must be asked of those who hold these beliefs, are our biggest mistakes in life really for a lack of information? 
Would we live more righteously if we had more money? Certainly we can point to people all over the news who have plenty of money, living plenty unrighteously, throwing their lives away and destroying not only their lives, but the relationships that they have. When we lose our temper and say harsh words, is it really a lack of information on best relational practices that causes us to do that? Or is it an unstoppable internal rage that we can't explain but feel chained to? And regarding Satan, is he just a, simp is he just a symbol? Or maybe, just maybe, some of the worst wickedness and evil that we see pervasive throughout the world today, perhaps there is an influence that goes beyond poor education or lack of resources. Certainly, the majority of us here today would say, I don't know about Satan, but God's real. So there's definitely a spiritual force for good. In fact, most people across the history of the world in all times and all places have believed in spiritual beings that are good and spiritual beings that are not good and believe that their life has been impacted by that. Are we really positive that there could be no evil outside of what we see and taste and touch with our hands. Perhaps some of us here today, we don't disagree. We know, we, we, we feel it, we have felt it. We were, we were lost, there was this gnawing internal depravity that we felt, maybe you feel it today, but maybe instead of thinking that you were dead, maybe we thought we were just really sick. Like some chronic ailment that we go to the doctor to get medication for, to assuage our pain, Perhaps if we just worked for enough nonprofits, if we just fed enough hungry people, if we just gave enough money to the poor, perhaps one day we'd look down from heaven and we would be proud of the life that we built for ourselves on earth. But what does it say? What do the scriptures say? You were dead. God disagrees. We were not struggling between doing what was right and what was wrong. We were dead to what was right, and we were living in what was wrong. We were not in the waves of life, struggling to swim, and then lifeguard Jesus throws us the lifesaver, and we grab on, and he pulls us to safety. No! We were at the bottom of the ocean of sin. Cold, dark, hopeless, lifeless. We were dead. The people of the church at Ephesus, people from primarily a polytheistic culture, would be considered spiritually dead, of course, right? They were ancient. They were superstitious. They had all these gods. It was weird. They grew up hearing about Zeus, Mars, Poseidon, and Artemis of the Ephesians, whose temple was the crown jewel of the city of Ephesus, and whose goddess Artemis was believed to be the one who could bring true new life. So for some of us today, it makes sense. If you grew up in that culture, yeah, of course, you're spiritually dead. But us? We might have grown up in the Bible Belt. We might have had parents that were Christians. Maybe you were like me. You grew up in a Christian home, went to church every Sunday. You were Texan. You probably considered yourself a good person. I know I did. Who doesn't, really? Look at the end of verse 3. We were, by nature, children under wrath, as the others were also. Everyone. The ESV translate that, translates that like the rest of mankind. This includes the Apostle Paul, who, by any 
uh, measure, if you were to take a straw poll of ancient Pharisees in the first century who knew Paul, who is the holiest? Paul. Who, who held the line on the law the most? Paul. You know what Paul says about himself? Dead. Like the rest of us. The truth, if received, should cause those of us who accept it to walk in a great humility. The next time we hear about gossip from people we know who don't know God, they don't follow Jesus, and we hear the, the latest rumor, the latest scandal, we shouldn't look down. No, we should think we were dead. The next time we see cultural leaders, they don't stand for righteousness, they don't stand for truth, no, we should think we were dead. In fact, anytime someone sins against us, how dare they? You know what we should think? We were dead. We were dead in our sins. But, yet, however, praise God, this passage does not just contain a heavy dose of humility. It also contains great joy as it answers the follow-up question, who were we with who are we? Who are we who believe? We are now eternally alive in Christ. Look with me again at verses 4 through 5. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. We were dead, but God. We were in sins, but God. We were hopeless, but God. We were imprisoned, but God. We were unclean, destitute, being led around by demonic influences like spiritual zombies, but God. Can I get an amen? Y'all can feel free to talk to me. We were wayward, disobedient, ones destined for the wrath of a holy God until God himself graciously raised us to eternal life in Christ. What does it mean to be eternally alive? It means that an external divine life force has overwhelmed the death inside of us. It has overwhelmed what once was. It means that the gnawing internal depravity that wreaked havoc on our souls has been given its last rites. And this death-to-life miracle is not six feet under, back to solid ground. It is forever dead under the wrath of God to forever alive in the heavenly realms in Christ under God's never-ending, never-fading favor. Verse 6 goes on to say this, He, being God, also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That means that just as Christ Jesus sits in perfect, wondrous community with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, you know, spiritually speaking, so do we. <clears throat> our past has been forgiven, and our eternal hope is now secure. And as you read the New Testament, you come upon this phrase. Paul uses it quite a bit. It's this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Some of you might already even know what it means to have your identity in Christ. What this means is that you're no longer in the realm of sins and trespasses. You literally spiritually step out of one area and into another. 
You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of heaven. You're a spiritual immigrant, so to speak. Your citizenship is no longer kingdom of darkness. It's now kingdom of light in Christ. Brother and sister, you have a cross-shaped eternal imprint on your heart. And it says this, I now belong to the family of God. Hallelujah. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Let's say you're in a courtroom. Anybody ever been in a courtroom? It's kind of an intimidating experience. We have a couple judges in this church. They know what it's like. They're there all the time. That's supposed to be funny. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Love you, judges. Where are you guys at? So uh, imagine you're there and you know you're guilty and the judge knows you're guilty. In fact, he's just said, guilty. And you know, you know what the law says, for your crimes that you did commit, it's the death penalty. There's, there's no, it's not wishy-washy. You got, you got one verdict, guilty, death penalty. Now imagine you're sitting there terrified. And imagine the judge, instead of giving you the sentencing of death, he says, wait a minute, not guilty. My son has willingly paid the penalty on your behalf. My son died in your place. In fact, it was my, it was my plan this whole time. I knew you were going to do it. And I'm so excited to tell you, not only are you not guilty, but now you're my son, you're my daughter. And imagine him throwing off the outer robe, running down, embracing you with tears in his eyes saying, you're my son. You're my daughter. Let's go home. And he brings you to a home of unsurpassing wealth and a large family that's waiting to lavishly celebrate you. Church, that is a small image of what it means to go from in death to in Christ. You don't live in sin anymore. Here's what 2 Corinthians verse 5, or chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 say. Therefore, if anyone anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See? The new has come. 1 John 3.1 says this, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The British theologian Michael Reeves revels in this truth in a recent book he wrote called Delighting in the Trinity. He writes this regarding salvation. He said, quote, Knowing God as our Father not only wonderfully gladdens our view of Him, it gives the deepest comfort and joy. The honor of it is stupefying. To be the child of some rich king, it'd be nice. But to be the beloved of the emperor of the universe, beyond words. Clearly the salvation of this God is better even than forgiveness, certainly more secure. Other gods might offer forgiveness, but this God welcomes and embraces us as his children, never to send us away. To be in Christ is to be in the most breathtaking, awe-inspiring, glorious position possible. To be in Christ in the heavenly places is to stand upon the summit of spiritual experience as the forgiven, cleansed, adopted child of God, eternally victorious now over sin, over death, and over hell. Christian brother or sister, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? 
You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're adopted. You're beloved. You're cherished. God is for you, not against you. And that's never changing. So are you hopeless today? Don't be. That's not who you are. You are a hope-filled child of God who has a hope stored up from he in heaven that's never perishing. It's never fading. Are you joyless today? Don't be. That's not who you are. You've been rescued from eternal wrath under God's wrath to eternal favor. Have you ever seen people in prison, maybe in like a war-torn area, and they get freed? You know what they do? They dance. They sing. They erupt with joy in church. That's the reality of where we were. We were goners. Perhaps you're just soul-tired today. That's okay. That's okay. There's coming a day when the light and momentary afflictions of this world will fade away. And we will be brought home to a new heavens and a new earth with no more pain and no more tears. And it will never spoil and it will never fade. Children of God, hold fast. Your Father sees you. Your King is coming. Hallelujah. How is this possible? You might be wondering. So one who really starts to grasp the ramifications of forever dead to forever alive has to begin to answer this question, well, how can it be? How is it possible that the lifeless spirit of a hardened rebel could enjoy communion with ever with the God who is love? The new identity is only possible because of the grace of God. Let's look at verses 8 through 9 again. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. This all-encompassing gift of salvation is only possible by grace and through faith. So what is grace? What is grace? Grace is the power of God to resurrect dead sinners. Grace is the power of God's love released upon dead sinners that brings about an eternal resurrection to new life. What then is faith? Faith is a firm, steadfast trusting in God's grace that does result in a transformed life of loving God and loving others. Whereas grace is the power of God for salvation, faith is the proper conduit. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, famous 17th century Londoner, known as the Prince of Preachers. What a great title for a preacher to have. That guy, he's the Prince of Preachers. He explains it this way. Grace is the first and last moving cause of salvation and faith. Faith occupies the position of a channel or conduit. Grace is the fountain and the stream. Faith is the aqueduct along which the flood of mercy flows down to refresh the thirsty sons of men. End quote. Now, however, lest we wrongly believe that somehow grace is God's, far, God's part and faith is our part, let's look closely at what it says. Verse 8. What does it say? By grace, through faith, and this. This, it's hearkening back to something. 
What is it hearkening back to in that sentence? This is not from yourselves. Is it grace? Well, surely it has to be grace, or grace wouldn't be grace. So surely grace is a gift. But what about faith? Is faith our part in salvation, and grace God's part in salvation? Simply put, not a chance. <laughs> not a chance. And I think Romans chapter 10, verse 17 helps us here. Romans 10, verse 17, it talks about the genesis of our faith. Where does it come from? How does it, how does it grow in the soil of our hearts? It says this, So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So there's a simple question here. Did any one of us think up the message about Christ? Did any one of us transfer it accurately for centuries? Did any one of us preach it to ourselves the first time? No, of course not. Of course not. No, faith is a gift that comes from the Christ who lived the message, the Spirit who preserved the message, and the Father who planned it before we were even born. Hallelujah. Both grace and faith are one great gift of God. We have nothing to do with our salvation, just as a dead, a dead man would have nothing to do with his own resurrection. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and this is from God alone. So we were dead, and that should lead to humility. And we're alive, and that should lead to joy. And God's grace is what made it possible, and that should lead us to wonder at the great love of a good God. But I told us at the beginning of the message today, we're going to be looking at the truth that because God has raised us graciously to new life, to eternal new life in Christ, we must walk in good works. So let's look at verse 10 as we look at what are those good works. Based on so great a salvation of so good a God. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we have been saved in part, at least in part, to do this, to walk in good works that glorify God. Now, this command can be looked at two different ways, and both are, both are fine. The first way is narrowly. The narrow way to think about good works, to think about us being as workmanship or masterpiece or whatever your translation says, is that God's given us unique talents. He's given us unique abilities. He's given us unique uh, life circumstances. For us to look at those critically and go, how can I employ my unique giftings and my unique talents to walk in good works for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom? That's a narrow application, and it's totally appropriate. But I think what this passage opens up for us at the end here is a broader application that might be a little more appropriate for this text. Broadly applied, the good works this text is speaking of are not just the works we are specially gifted at, nor are they only the works we feel good doing. Rather, they are all the works associated with Jesus' broad and greatest commandments of loving God and loving God others. Church, sometimes good works feel hard. They are sometimes frustrating. They can demand more time, money, and energy than we ever anticipated. Parents, can I get an amen? Good works include the thousands of little acts of kindness we do for our loved ones when we don't feel like it, 
Good works include the thousands of times we say yes to God, we obey his commands in scripture when nobody's looking. Good works is obeying the command to love our enemies, help our neighbors, serve our church family, share Jesus with those who don't know him, even when all we want to do is check out and just watch some Netflix. In fact, the greatest work ever done was indeed the most arduous and the most painful. It was the good work of Christ on the cross. The last scripture we're going to look at today is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And we're going to see an example of what does it mean, illustrated, for us to look at. What does it mean to walk in good works as those who have been brought from death to life? Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 says this. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was the greatest of good works? It was Christ. It was the Son of the living God, the Prince of Heaven, coming down in the form of a servant, in the likeness of humanity, taking our punishment, taking our just wrath on His behalf on the cross, dying and rising again, so that we who believe in Him now might experience eternal life in Christ. Hallelujah! Paul. Paul himself experienced what good works could do to somebody. Paul, at this point, he's writing in a Roman jail cell. He's been beaten. He's been betrayed. His entire ethnic group has turned their backs on him, for the most part. He's constantly ailing, sometimes poor, sometimes shipwrecked, sometimes getting bit by a snake out of nowhere. All for the good works of preaching and teaching the good news about Christ. These had put him in jail. So if Christ is our prime illustration, Paul shows us a little bit about what good works could look like for those who have been born again to new life. What does that mean for good works? At least four things, quickly. Good works are selfless works. They don't always feel good, but they always are good for you and for the people you do them on behalf of. Two, we can expect some good works to be uncomfortably hard. When was the last time you served someone outside of an immediate family member that was uncomfortably hard? We can expect good works to be painful at times. Remember the partial truth in this proverb, no good deed goes unpunished. Sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes we're underappreciated, we're undervalued, we're overlooked. Nobody gets how hard we've worked for them. But even in light of that, 
Number four, expect good works to result in joy and life. If not initially, eventually. Church, I've only been here, this is I think my fifth Sunday. And so I don't have a lot of relational equity yet with many of you. Some of you I do. Some of you I don't. It's the first time you've seen me. Can I offer two opportunities of ways that we can walk in good works as we kind of start to come to the close of a summer season and as we start to focus our eyes towards the fall? First, there are dozens and dozens of opportunities to do good works in the core ministries of this church. In fact, you might over the next couple of weeks feel slightly bombarded by all the great opportunities to do good works here at Bethel South Campus. Just wait till you walk into that foyer next Sunday. You'll see what I'm talking about. And some of the good works that we're called to might be good works that we're not comfortable doing. They're not in our sweet spot. They're not the narrowly applied message of walking good works. They're the broad ones. They're the ones that don't feel good. You might not be talented at serving whomever. Unless it's the worship team, and then you should probably be talented, right? Amen? But it's not just so that we can have needs met, and it's not just because I'm a pastor that's saying it. It's for our own spiritual good to walk in the grace that God's given us. And there are people who come in every Sunday. Remember the first Sunday you came to Bethel South. There are people asking the question, what is the purpose of my life? Is church just a bunch of hypocrites? Is Christ real? Am I loved? What is the gospel? Every Sunday we have an opportunity to serve and love the people of this community coming in with those questions. That's just one way. There's many other ways, but here's the second way I want to end with. Who do you know who needs to hear the good news about Christ? You wouldn't be here today, most of us, if somebody hadn't done the good work of sharing the good news of Christ with us. Who do you know who doesn't know the love of God? They haven't gone from death to life. They don't understand or maybe even agree with certain positions that have been stated this morning. Would you commit to write their name down? Can you just pray for them? Can you be open to say, God, if you would allow me the opportunity, I'll walk in that good work, even if it's uncomfortable, knowing that it could result in the deepest joy and the deepest life that person has ever experienced. So what does Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 teach us? Because God has graciously raised us to new life, to new eternal life in Christ, we must now, therefore, walk in good works. We once were dead in sins, we're now alive in Christ. It's all because of God's grace. And I pray that we would walk in good works as children of God. Let's pray. Father, you know where each one of us is at this morning. You know our concerns, you know our fears, you know our hopes, you know our joys, you know our histories. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and would you minister to our hearts again? Maybe for those of us who forgot what it felt like to be dead, forgot that first joy of salvation in Christ, would you bring it back again today? 
For those of us who don't know you, who haven't experienced being born again into eternal life, God, would you save today? Would you stir a hunger that's unquenchable for your truth? And Father, I do pray that as we wrap up our summer season, as we look towards the fall, I pray that you would open our eyes spiritually to see what are the good works that you've called us to walk in, not just here at Bethel, but in all areas of life, the thousands and thousands of opportunities we get to respond to your love, motivated not by guilt or shame, but by the love of a wonderful Heavenly Father. We love you, Jesus, who made it all possible. It's in your name we pray. Amen.